0: Maybe Romans 14, 13 to 23, for a I've entitled, The Limits of Christian Liberty. Let's follow along as I read. Therefore, let, let us not judge one another any uh, more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know when I'm convinced of, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to law. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is spoken of, what is good for you be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue things that make for peace and building up one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things that indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offence. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your uh, brother stumbles. The faith which you have have as your own convictions before the Lord. Happy is the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned. If he eats, because he is not eating from faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. You know, here's the Veda writings of the founding fathers of America, you would find out that the word that appears again and again is the word liberty. I mean, the colonists rebelled against King George because they believed their rights and liberties were being violated, and they established a new nation and a new form of government for the express purpose of protecting those God-given rights and liberties. As they wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we hold. This truth is to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. Two of our national monuments have the word liberty in it. Liberty Bell and the Statue of Liberty. Silently declare our commitment to the principles of freedom. But you know, long before they were ringing the bells of freedom in America, the Apostle Paul was trumpeting the cause of liberty in the church. In Galatians 5 1, he reminds us that it was for freedom's sake that Christ set us free. As we've been looking at the book of Romans over the last year and a half here. Paul has spoken of a number of ways that Christians are actually free. First of all, we're free from the penalty of sin. In Romans 5 8 9, Paul says that God demonstrated his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall, future tense, be saved from the wrath of God through him. Romans 8, one says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus paid for the penalty of sin for those who trusted him. Secondly, though, we are being freed from the power of sin. We sing that song that has the words, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Once a person dies, the law can make no more demands on him. Remember the charges against Jeffrey Epstein that were dismissed when they found him dead in the cell. Well, for the believer, the death of Jesus becomes our death the moment we trust in him, which breaks the power, the dominating power of sin in the life of a believer. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 5 5-7, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. He ends that section by reminding believers that sin shall not be master over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Well, someday we'll also be free from even the possibility of sin. In the end, when God has completed His work of salvation, believers will be sinless, incapable of sinning, even as Christ Himself is. That's the guaranteed outcome which God will bring about for every single believer, because those who believe in Jesus, for those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. These he also predestined, he had called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There will be none who drop out. All that God calls will eventually be saved. But there's something else that we're saved from. As Christ's followers and the partakers of the new covenant, we've been freed from the law of Moses. Paul tells us in chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you have been made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You see, while Christians are still bound by the moral law that's found in the Old Testament and is also repeated in the New Testament, the civil law and ceremonial law given to Israel is fulfilled in Christ, so it's no longer applicable to the followers of Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Now, Jewish Christians in Paul's day who had a clear understanding of the implications of the New Covenant understood they were free to eat shellfish or pork or keep or not keep the Sabbath. But other Jewish believers, and even some Gentiles, not understanding the liberty we have in Christ, had uneasy conscience when it came to such practices. Well, this chapter as we've been looking at, chapter 14. Paul's great concern is that we not let these uh, side issues divide us, but rather that we would leave allowances for the beliefs and practices of others and always treat one another as brothers and sisters, For whom Christ died. And in this particular section, Paul still maintains the freedom of the Christian with regard to these secondary issues, but he insists that we exercise that freedom in a way that doesn't harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, to help you develop that right kind of attitude when it comes to other believers in church, we want to look at what Paul says on the way we should handle these disputed issues. And so to do that, we're going to look at God's word today. pray to start. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. He Help us see what's in here for us. It doesn't look on the surface like this and all that applicable, but the principles that are underneath the issue are applicable in every age. So bless us now to that end for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, outline the sermon. We can use three phases of uh, praises. The first one you can just write down walking in love, walking in love. And that's verses 13 to 15. Secondly, a kingdom focus. That's 16 to 18. And finally, building up not tearing down, and that's 19 to 23. So walking in love. Now Paul has ended the last section by reminding all the Christians in Rome, whether Jews or Gentiles, strong in faith or weak, that each one of us will give an account to God for himself. Not only as to the religious practices we had, but more importantly, in the way we treated our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to stand before Jesus not before each other, to give an account. And that's why Paul starts his section here by saying, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. Now, again, I want to remind you that what Paul's talking about here is what the theologians call adiaphora. I spelled that out last time. You'll have to remember it for this time. But what it means is it's matters that are of indifference things that are neither commanded or forbidden in the Bible. For instance, should a, a church have individual seats or should they have pews? Should it have brown carpet or should it have blue carpet? Here's one that's a little more theologically weighty. Should a church celebrate communion every single week, once a month, once a quarter? Do you know there were some Presbyterian churches in Scotland only did it once a year? Well, Jesus said this. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, but he doesn't tell you how often you're supposed to do it. One of the denominations that I used to belong to prided itself on being what they called doctrinally minimalist. All you had to do to become a member was affirm that you believed in the centrality of the scripture and the necessity of the new birth. You didn't have to believe that the Bible was inerrant or infallible. Um, At Denominational meetings, when I would go to them, I always heard them trumpeting what they called our freedom in Christ. And that freedom in Christ, as they saw it, allowed a church, for instance, to hire a female pastor. But strangely enough, it did not allow me to be ordained in their denomination if I didn't hold to the view of having female pastors. Some churches feel free to put up rainbow flags in the front of their buildings. The Bible never gives us the freedom to promote sin. Where the Bible speaks, we're simply to obey, it says. But when we're dealing with other matters... Of opinion and personal conviction. Paul wants us to refrain from judging and criticizing other believers. Instead, he says, Determine this, not to put a stumbling block in the way of another brother. You ever run an obstacle course? If you're in the military, you're going to do that. The recruits got to scale walls, they got to go through tunnels, climb ropes, swim in ponds filled with alligators, or something like that. Obstacle courses are supposed to be hard, and they're supposed to be hard on purpose. It's part of the training. But if you have a 90-year-old aunt who's coming to visit your house, and before she comes into the door, she has to run an obstacle course that you put out for her, that's not an act of love. You should be moving all the stuff out of the way and helping her to get in. Well, as a believer, we want to help other Christians on their way to heaven. We don't want to do anything that would get in the way that might trip them up. You know, professional football players, right? Football is a violent sport, and on purpose, I mean, you can plow over another guy and you can drive him into the ground. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't trip him. If you trip a guy, a ref will come and throw his flag and he'll say, tripping, number 65, 15-yard penalty, automatic first down. And then your coach will give you a dirty look. Well, you don't want God throwing a flag on you because you caused some other believer to stumble in their faith. And I want to remind you, this is not a small thing. Listen to of the words of Jesus when he came to Stumble blocks. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were tied to his neck, and he'd be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Matthew 6, 18, 6-7. So Paul gives these two commands here in the first section. Don't judge on these issues. And determined not to put a stumbling block in front of another. But he he wants to make clear his own position on these issues of eating or not eating certain foods. He says this I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean in itself. You see, under the Old Testament law, Jews couldn't eat pork or shellfish or shark meat because it doesn't have scales. But under the New Covenant, these dietary restrictions have been rescinded. Jesus said that it's not what goes into a mouth that causes someone to be defiled, but what comes out of their mouth that causes them to be defiled. And then Mark tells us parenthetically that by saying this, Jesus was declaring that all food is reclaimed. Peter, remember he had that vision? He went up for a nap on the roof after lunch. He had this vision where he said, there are all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures and earth of the earth and the birds and the air. It was lowered down on a sheet and says a voice came and said, get up Peter, eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time and said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up in the sky. Now, this was not ultimately about his diet. It was about whether he could approach Gentiles to give them the gospel and go in their homes. But notice that God illustrated it by saying, you can eat these foods now. Paul tells us that one of the things that will characterize false teachers in the last days is they'll give themselves the doctrine of demons. And they'll forbid marriage and abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected and received with gratitude for it's sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 3-5. Now, you may not think this is a big deal. I know that Leslie, when she was working with my wife at the History Center or the Radisson somewhere, they had a Jewish wedding and they were supposed to bring the food out and Leslie brought it out and it was wrapped in plastic and she, I think, took the plastic off the hand of the guy and he flipped out. Her dirty Gentile hands had touched it and defiled the food. Now, he's not concerned about what's coming out of his mouth, only what's going in. So you're free to eat whatever food you want as a Christian. You can go ahead and eat camel. Just don't invite me for supper. I've had it. It's not very good. Well, the Christians who had a strong understanding of the faith in Paul's day in the city of Rome there, they knew they were free to eat whatever they wanted because they were under the new covenant. All foods are clean. But not everybody in the Roman church had reached that same level of understanding. And Paul was concerned for them. He said this, But to the one who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. It's not wrong for any believer in Rome, the Jew or the Gentile, to eat pork. But if, if one of those Jewish believers, in his conscience, believes it's wrong, but does it anyway, at that point he's actually sinning because he's doing what he thinks is wrong. Let me give you an illustration on this. a number of occasions, Suzanne and I have gone over uh, to the Green Lake Conference Center uh, for a pastors and wives retreat that the Southern Baptist put on. And usually when you get there, they have a, a gift bag that's laid out for the couples. that has a coffee cup in it and pens and some candies, maybe a book. And they, they lay them out on the table, and then you can grab one when you come in. Now suppose that, unknown to me, there was another group meeting there at the same time from another denomination in the conference center. So Suzanne and I check in at the desk. I, I get my key, and then we go to our room. And as we enter the lobby of our building, I see the big table full of gift bags, and so I grab ours. We unpack our things and then head over to the dining hall for a supper. As we enter that building, I see a, another table filled with gift bags. And these gift bags are not like the ones I picked up before, and I'm puzzled. So I asked one of the hosts why they're giving out these two bags. Oh, no, we're not giving out one bag or two bags, just one. Oh, the one in the other room that I picked up, that was from the other conference, the other denomination. Now let's do some moral reasoning here at this point. In taking that bag, did I commit a crime? You guys are all nodding your head. No, but you're wrong. I did take a crime. Did I? Did it belong to me? No. no. Did I take it? Yep. Is it? Is that ceiling? Boy, we're going to have to work on this 10 commandments. <laughs> <laughs> I can see we're going to do some more. All right. So I did commit a crime, didn't I? Right? Let me ask you a question, though. In God's eyes, did I sin? Now you're all gun You're not going to answer. <laughs> Actually, no, I didn't. Why didn't I sin? Because I didn't know that I was stealing. I committed a crime, but I didn't actually sin, right? But now let's take the same scenario and turn it a little bit. We go into the lobby in our building, and I see the bags on a table. In the side room, they're holding a meeting for the other denomination. I think to myself, oh, those are the gift bags for uh, uh, those companies, not ours. But the candy looks good, and I want the pen, and so I look around this way and that way, and I pick up one of the bags, and I take it to my room. I don't want anyone to see that I took it. I empty out the contents in the suitcase and throw the bag away. And then Suzanne and I go over to the dining hall. But this time, the couples have gift bags with the very same design, same gift bag that I have. I found out that the bag I took that time in our lobby was actually for our conference. Now let me ask the question again. Let's see if you do better this time. Have I I committed a crime at that point? No, because it was for me. Have I sinned when I did it? Yes. Because I thought it was wrong, because I thought it didn't belong to me, I took it anyways, even though I was free to do so, I would be sinning. Now, you get the logic of this here. You see how this works. when, When Jewish people were eating pork, they were free to do so if they understood that it wasn't a problem. Even though a Jew in the Roman church was free to eat pork, if he thinks it's wrong when he eats it, He's sinning because he's violating his conscience. He's doing something he thought he ought not to do. That's why Paul says, but to him who thinks it's unclean, to him it is unclean. So what Paul is saying to the believers who understand that they can eat anything is that if they pressure one of these weaker faith brothers to eat something that he thinks he shouldn't, and as a result this man violates his conscience, you, the stronger believer, is causing the weaker one to sin. He goes on to say, for if because of food, your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking in love. Now, one of the problems we have in our culture is we use love for all kinds of things. That works. I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, music when it's good. and You know, that song by Tom T. Hall has, I love this and that, I love you too, and I love onions. Now, I don't think you should be using the same word for onions that you're using for your sweetheart, but that's, that's my opinion. But the Bible defines love, when you really boil it down, it means to desire the highest good for another person, your willingness to sacrifice yourself for them to achieve that. And that's why Jesus said, No greater love has any man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. We can't be walking in love if we're tripping up other believers on their pathway to heaven. So suppose you have a coworker. we'll call her Tiffany, uh, who's really into the environmental movement and animal rights. And because of that, she's a vegan. She doesn't eat meat or animal products. But after witnessing her tour for a number of months, Tiffany gets saved, and she even joins your Bible study. Now, John, your Bible study leader, is a conservative who thinks that environmentalists are earth-worshipping wackos. He knows that even after becoming a Christian, Tiffany still doesn't eat meat because she doesn't want animals to suffer. And he's always putting meat and cheese out and urging her to eat it. And uh, finally, she gives in to the pressure, but afterwards she feels horrible. And so she's so upset, she stops coming to the Bible study, stops coming to church, and she won't even talk to you at work. How would you feel at that point? You'd be pretty angry at your Bible study later. I mean, you'd say, I put a lot of time and effort and prayer and tears into that relationship, and you destroyed it all by shoving a meat stick in front of her face at the last Bible study. Now, get this, though. John is right on the issue, isn't he? but he's wrong on the way he handled it. Does God require Tiffany to eat meat? No. Is she sinning if she doesn't eat it? No. Does he love her less if she doesn't eat it? No. Is she in some way hurting John by not eating it? No, you say like my dad always did. We didn't. Oh, more for me. What would you say to John about this? I know what Paul would say. It'd say this. Do not destroy with your food someone for whom Christ died. That brings out a second point, though. Focus on the This is verse 16 to 18. Paul says, this, therefore, do not let what for you is a good thing, meaning this freedom to eat whatever you want or to celebrate certain days or not celebrate them. Don't let that be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. And approved by men. Now, Paul agrees with those who have strong faith that there's no foods that are in unclean in themselves. So believers are free to eat whatever they want, and that freedom is a good thing. But he doesn't want that freedom to turn into something that can cause people to speak evil of the Christian faith. You know, early Christians were under a lot of suspicion from both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews considered them heretics who were encouraging other Jews to violate the laws of Moses and to go on sinning that grace will abound. The rabbis said that's exactly what would happen if you took the Mosaic law. If you don't have the Mosaic law, what's going to restrain people? The Gentiles, on the other hand, they suspected the Christians of being disloyal to the Roman Empire, radicals trying to subvert the established order, telling their wives they don't have to submit to their husbands. And slaves, they didn't have to obey their masters. You know, if these Christians keep teaching this equality of all man stuff, we're going to have a new Spartacus arise and they're going to wreak havoc on the empire. I mean, you read through the New Testament epistles and see how many times you'll find that Paul is insisting on the need for Christians to live model lives. Beyond reproach, he says in Titus two eight, so that the opponents, our opponents, will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Yeah, you know what, if you're a jerk at your job, it's not just that you're a jerk, you're being a Poor witness. If you're smart enough to the cop when he pulls you over, you're sinning. Now I defined before the kingdom of God as this. You're not going to have time to write this down, but the progressive reign of God in history, whereby through the Spirit He overcomes the work of the devil and brings people into glad and willing obedience to His Son. Now I could take ten sermons just on that, showing you from Jesus' parable uh, about the kingdom that all those phrases apply. The, the kingdom by definition is a place where a king reigns, right? And someday Jesus will come back and he will reign upon the earth, but right now he reigns and manifests his reign in the hearts of his people who give glad and willing obedience. I want to camp here just for a second. The churches in America are filled with people who think they're saved enough. not. How do you know if you're saved? Well, I'll give you a simple answer to that. According to what I told you, those who are in the kingdom give God glad and willing obedience. They enjoy it. John said it this way. He said, his commandments, meaning God's commandments, are not burdensome. I have to tell you, I worry as a pastor when you have people that you're trying to disciple, members in church and stuff, and you always have to push them. Always push them. Always push them. There's never an internal pull. They don't have the desire for these things. They don't give flat and willing obedience, which means you're not saved. So this definition of the kingdom, but notice what Paul says here, where the focus is. He says the focus isn't about ritual. It's not about what you eat, what you drink, what, what days you hold, whether you have Lent or not Lent, whether you eat pork or this or that. He said, no, that's not what it's about. He said, for the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I was thinking, uh, talking to the confirmation classes last week. None of the kids are believers. I, I mentioned that one of the young men that they knew had become a Christian sometime in the last year. And one of the girls who was there, she knew knows this guy. And I asked her, I said, well, what do you see different in his life now than before he was a believer? And she said this, Well, he's always happy. He's always smiling. And he's kind to all the other students. He always wants to be helpful to him. And one girl interrupted at that point and said, what's the fruit of the Spirit? I said, well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I said, do you see this in that young man? He said, yeah. I said, don't you want that? Oh, I think so. And Jesus said, he said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your fathers. The light that they see is God's goodness shining through us. Verse 18 says this, For he who in this way serves God, our Christ, is acceptable to God and approved by men. It's not about the external stuff, it's about the heart transformation and treating people well. That brings us to our last point, though, building up, not tearing down. World Trade Center, Manhattan, New York. They started construction in 1968, finished in the mid-1980s. When it was done, the Twin Towers reached 1,300 feet in the air, 110 stories. By the way, just so that you get the an idea that for those of you who are familiar with the IES building, that's 52 stories, or 55. This one's 110, so it was huge, right? Well, 15 years it took to build it. Let me ask you a question. How long did it take to bring it down? took one morning. A hijacked plane was crashed into the floors between 93 and 99 on the North Tower. At 846, another plane struck between the 77th and 85th of the South Tower. Seventeen minutes later, at 9.03, both the burning infernos collapsed in two hours. You know, there's people who work in the military, they're called munitions experts. They're trained how to tear things down by blowing them up. What Paul is saying here is he doesn't want any munitions experts in the church. He writes this, verse 19, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace, and building each other up. Do you not tear down the work of God for the sake of food? Christians got enough problems with those who are outside who hate us and mess things up. We don't want to be doing it inside the church. And keep in mind, Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If Jesus is building the church up, why would we want to be tearing the church down? Paul reaffirms his position on this issue again. He says, all things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So if the Gentiles in the Roman church had a church potluck and they decided to serve as the main course, roasted hog, and they knew that their Jewish church members, some of them wouldn't come as a result of this, when they're sitting down eating their pork and thanking God for it, they're actually sinning at that moment. Why couldn't they just have served lamb? Paul goes on to say this. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything which causes your brother to stumble. Years ago, I was teaching a youth group. And for an opening hook, I I had some cards, some playing cards. I don't know if we played the game Liars Poker or something. It was to get them into the idea of a lesson. But uh, there was a woman who was helping me in the church at the time. And uh, I told her what I was going to do. And she was really uneasy about it. She said, "I, I don't like the idea of playing cards in the church. I don't know why that was the case. She didn't expand on it. Some people don't like playing cards because they say it actually traces back to tarot cards, which has to do with witchcraft. Other people don't like playing cards because they associate it with bars. That's where you play cards. I know churches where they could never have a pool table in the church, or people own one because they associate that with bars. Well, the woman told me she had a deck of cards at home that actually have a 1 through 13 with no face cards. No kings, no queens, no jacks. Okay. What should I, and she offered to use these, give these to me to use them. What should I have done at that point? Should I laugh her off and uh, wave my hand at her scruples on these cards? No, you know what I said? I said, sure, that'd be great. Now think about it, that didn't cost me anything. And put her mind at ease. Why not simply accommodate her? And even if it had been an inconvenience for me, shouldn't I still make the adjustment? 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul said, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, which would include women who have problems with pine hearts. So some Jews didn't feel they could eat non-kosher meat. Some Gentiles had poems about eating meat that might have been sacrificed to idols. Some avoided meat altogether and couldn't drink wine with a clear conscience. And Paul said, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that might cause your brother to suffer. This is what I'm telling you. As a Christian, all your decisions that you make, you should not only ask, What do I want? but you also need to ask, How does this affect others? My oldest son just got promoted to a new position in his company. He's going to be in charge of procurement. His job will be to make sure that all the supply lines keep coming and there's no disruption. I said, are you sure you want that job? That's like being appointed minister of agriculture in the Soviet Union. It's a You know? Oh, he took the job, right? Part of it's because he gets to move back to the city, so he gets to see our grandchildren. Now, I want you to think about it. When he's making this decision, he's thinking, okay, will this help me in my career? Will it pay me more money? Is this something I'm going to be interested in? But there's another whole side he should be asking, and he was. How does this affect my wife? What about my kids? Are the hours going to make it more difficult? I mean, you don't think only about yourself, you think about your family. What I'm telling you here is, if you're a true believer, your family is the church. We should always be thinking, not only how can we build up other Christians in the faith, but how can we make sure we don't cause anyone to stumble by what we do? The faith which you have, he says in verse 22, have as your own conviction before God. I don't drink alcohol, but as a pastor, you've never heard me tell you that you can't have a beer or a glass of wine remember years ago, I was at a pastor friend of mine, his house uh, in Kenosha. And when we were there, um, we sat down for the meal. And he said, uh, would you care for some wine? There was some on the table. I said, no, no, thank you. They said, would you be bothered if I uh, drank it? I said, well, no, of course. And why did he ask that second question? Because he didn't want to be a stumbling block in any way to me. You know, it's interesting, though. I remember seeing a video podcast that I've watched several times. The guys are Reformed Christians. They not only smoke cigars when they have their discussion online, they also have bottles of whiskey on the table. What, Jack Daniels and Jesus? Now, here's my point. What's their point in doing that? There's a lot of people, a lot of Baptists in particular, Southern Baptists, have a problem with drinking. How many people tuned in, heard what they were saying, saw the bottles, tuned it out, weren't there to hear the theology because they stumbled over that one issue? Do they have to put it on there? Do they have to put it in front of the camera? No. No. Paul says, As happy as the one who does not condemn himself and what he approves. <clears throat> but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not of faith is sin." What Paul is saying is this. He said, look, if you can eat meat and drink some wine and do it all with a clear conscience, if your faith allows you to do that, then wonderful. But if your conscience is troubled by these practices or any others, then don't do it. Because at that very moment, you're not trusting God. Instead, you're violating your conscience. Jiminy Cricket, you know that little guy? He told Pinocchio, let your conscience be your guide. Well, I have to tell you, your conscience is not always right. But to violate your conscience is always wrong. And to cause somebody else to violate theirs is a sin. Christians have liberty in Christ, but our liberty is always supposed to be limited by our love for and concern for fellow believers. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. By the way, not many people in our church are concerned about the but how many times do we cause people to stumble just by a cutting word, some offhand comment, or just the fact that we're not very sensitive? We want to do what it builds people up, not to our Build them? That's Our Father God, who hasn't been, at times, uh, stumbling block, But we don't want to do that. We want to be people who uh, are building people up in the faith because we got enough enemies out there. We don't need them in here. So help us to do this. Help us to be less self-centered. Help us to come to church asking how we can be a blessing to other people. Because Jesus told us that when we do that, it's not just that we will be a blessing to other people, but we're actually going to find greater joy. I know in my own life, if I start thinking about myself and putting myself at the center, that's the end of my happiness. I don't want that. I don't want that for anyone here. So help us to be other-centered and Christ-centered and to be blessings to all that are around us. And we ask now in Jesus' name for his sake.